The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Would you rise and I'd like to uh, read the text for today, which is found in Malachi chapter 2, 17 through 3, 4. Please give attention to God's inspired word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will open this text to our understanding, that it may encourage us as we consider it together. May you be uplifted in all that we think and say for the sake and the glory of you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I was reading on the uh, Westminster website and read from a recent graduate the following statement. Westminster taught me to see God's great plan of salvation unfold in history. In short, I learned how to see and preach Christ from the scriptures. I trust this is true for all of you. I'm sure it is. Last week, I went to see the movie The Conspirator, a historical movie about the assassination of Lincoln. Though I knew the outcome of this event uh, and that uh, poor Mrs. Surratt wouldn't make it, it was nevertheless mesmerizing to see how history worked itself out as this story was recounted. Well, you know, looking at a text like this is a little like watching a movie, seeing both the beginning and the end, and by that being able to see how God works in history over an extended but defined period of time, to draw from this what Paul says, the encouragement of the scriptures. So are you discouraged today? Then listen up. This is for you. Well, why would you possibly be discouraged? Israel at the time of Malachi was in a situation of apparent discouragement. Life was 
a humdrum existence in a post-exilic situation in the middle of the 5th century BC. God seemed to be absent, and doubts begin to arise in God's people. And the text that I've chosen, which is Malachi 3, 1 through 4, is really God's answer to Israel's question, which is, where is the God of justice? Isn't that something we sometimes ask? Maybe not in those terms. But they're complaining about the absence of God, and God will answer them with a promise. It's interesting that this book is the only one I can tell in the entire Bible that begins with the statement describing itself as an oracle, and then the phrase, I have loved you, Malachi 1-2. No, the book in the Bible begins quite this way. And those people who were discouraged and apparently railing against God should have known that. Already in Exodus 15.3, Moses says, You have led us in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. God loves Israel and can be trusted to take care of her in the future. Though, of course, we sometimes have to hang in and wait to be patient and indeed This promise took 400 years to be fulfilled, but it was fulfilled in an amazing way. Now, just as Julius Caesar believed that Gaul was divided into three parts, so is my sermon. This is true. I don't know what parts of Gaul he was thinking of, but uh, he believed that Gaul was divided into three parts. These are the three parts of God's answer, really, of his promise. Note them. He will come, he will judge, and he will bless. So let's look at these three. Uh, He will come. This is what the prophecy says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This prophecy doubtless concerns the final prophet and a final coming of the Lord, since the coming of the Lord to his temple has a certain ring of eschatological finality. In 4.5, we read the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is the great future. So, who are these two, the messenger and the Lord, God himself. Well, the messenger is a prophet of God. If you understand the phrase, God will send this messenger, since we read in Jeremiah, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my messengers, all my servants, the prophets, to you day after day. Actually, Malachi 4, 5 is very explicit. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this messenger really is a prophet, an eschatological prophet, a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. 
So these people could understand what that meant somewhat. How about the promise of God coming to his temple? What would they think as they imagined this event taking place? In Habakkuk 2.20, we hear that the Lord is in his holy temple and that the earth should keep silence before him. There's a sense in which God is already in his temple. But then there's also the coming of God to his temple, even in the Old Testament. You remember when Isaiah is in the temple and God is present and he's high and lifted up on his throne, but his train fills the temple And the cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is an awesome moment, such that the foundations of the temple shake at the voice of him who called, and the house is filled with smoke. The coming of God to his temple, then, is a formidable event that God promises. Well, we know the fulfillment of this coming, don't we? The Gospels uh, quickly point out Mark 1, 2 through 3 identifies the messenger of the covenant as John the Baptist who comes in the spirit of Elijah. That means then that if John the Baptist is the covenant messenger, then in some unique way, Jesus, who also comes at this very same moment, is also both human and the divine Lord coming to his temple. He comes, he says, to my father's house. And so Jesus really is the other fulfillment of this prophecy, the one that relates to God coming to his temple. Well, the second thing is then that this future event will be a time of judgment. God will judge. It will be a day of radical judgment when all evildoers will be stubble, says 4.1. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. Israel knew about God's coming in fearful judgment. Remember at the time of the uh, treasonous action of worship of the golden calf and the Levites were set out to judge and 3,000 men fell that day. When God comes to his temple, Elijah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm undone. I'm toast. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. God's coming is necessarily a day of fearful judgment. And so it was when this text was fulfilled. John the Baptist came preaching uh, not a Jesus loves you kind of sermon, though it is true that Jesus loves us, but uh, his uh, sermon also included this remark, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John tells us that Jesus will do the same thing. The Jesus meek and mild actually will baptize you with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat 
into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When Jesus comes to the temple, it's an act of judgment against that system of commercial activity, and he takes a whip and applies God's judgment there. Which sort of makes me think that this future day is just as much a time of judgment as it is a time of blessing. Now, we don't like that so much in our time. We want to sugarcoat the message for our world in only positive terms. And, of course, the positive ones are absolutely essential. That's my third point. The sermon would be useless without my third point. But the fact is that it is a double kind of coming, one of judgment and of blessing, and that the blessing is impossible without the judgment. So wrath is just as much evidence of the presence of this future coming than is forgiveness and blessing. But what is amazing is that this judgment finally comes to the one only true Israelite, the one who is baptized with fire, the one who is baptized for the sins of Israel, Jesus himself who takes on himself the judgment of Israel at the cross. This is a most awesome moment as we live through that this last week on Good Friday. But of course that becomes the basis for blessing. My third point, he will bless. Malachi 3.17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. The sparing of his children. But of course, that's only possible by God not sparing his own son. Romans 8.32 is an amazing statement of the gospel. When we read here, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Only because God in his son takes our sin upon himself can this coming, final coming to his temple, be one of blessing and fellowship. Well, this time of blessing is an amazing time of unimagined import. In the blessing side of this fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah to restore all things. That classic famous Greek term, apokatastasis, the placing of all things in their rightful positions, in a final state of justice. But then Jesus brings blessing in an amazing way. When he comes to the temple with blessing, he actually replaces it with another temple. In John 2 we read, when the Jews say to Jesus, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days, But Jesus, says John, was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. This is an interesting twist on the notion of God coming to his temple in glory. And I believe we see this specifically at the moment of the transfiguration, where, of course, the body of Jesus becomes transfigured with unimaginable glory in the presence of Moses and Elijah. This is the new temple of unspeakable holiness, where his clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. One can easily think of our text, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The goal is radiant purification, and we see in the body of Jesus, in the person and body of Jesus, an anticipation of this great glory, because really the Mount of Transfiguration is an anticipation of what happens just a few days later when God transforms the battered, broken corpse of Jesus into a wonderful, glorious spiritual body. Isn't that amazing? Malachi could never have imagined this side of the prophecy that he gave to Israel. The prophecy that death itself will be swallowed up in victory and that Jesus will be made alive and that the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will come into our mortal bodies called the temple of the living God. The body of Christ, the church, as a down payment of things to come, which really is the final resurrection of the cosmos. Malachi had some idea of this when he said, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. There is this almost cosmic, certainly global, but eventually cosmic notion of God bringing blessing beyond anything we can imagine. A final, resurrected, glorified heavens and earth. A new cosmic temple where God dwells in the midst of his people forever. Well, that's quite a lot to swallow down. But this is an amazing prophecy. But we need to apply it in the couple of minutes that remain to me because we live in our bodies and we're not always glorious temples. And this should encourage us to avoid the temptation that old Israel felt at the time of Malachi, which is often our state. It's the problem of the already not yet paradigm where the drudgery of the all or of the, the drudgery of the not yet sort of consumes the hope and faith in the already. Where things seem to continue as they were and the promise of his coming lacks luster. This, folks, is a dangerous period where subtle forms of unbelief can thrive. I'm speaking from experience. Inward depression, lack of faith, Fear of death, formalism, hypocrisy, 
hypocrisy between outward words and inner beliefs, a selfish focus on one's own history rather than God's. That temptation comes in many ways. For the younger generation, more and more today, uh, we don't want pie in the sky. We want to see the kingdom now. We want to make it come now. And so we will build wells in Africa and never speak of the wells of salvation. It's a temptation for us older ones who see the world passing away, our bodies getting more fragile, my golf score is not so good, and we tend to become discouraged and believe that everything finally is futile. The reason why Israel at the time of Malachi should have believed this glorious promise is that the Lord loved them. And so they could believe that this promise was trustworthy. The reason why we can believe this is we have actually seen this prophecy get fulfilled down to the last detail. We have, says the Apostle Peter, the more sure word of prophecy that should give us hope and encouragement. This hope animates us, as we heard on Tuesday from Dennis, from Philippians. It animated the Apostle Paul, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, Paul lived in the already and the not yet, and his not yet was transformed by this vision of the glorious future. We have met the risen Lord. We know he loves us, and he promises us a glorious future. So I think we can sing with courage what's called, unfortunately, the battle hymn of the republic. I think it should be called the battle hymn of the church, stripped, of course, of any jingoism, for these words contain an unusually stunning exhortation to faithfulness. Now, you're used to, you know it, but let me just repeat it to you. This is the hope of the believer. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I have read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. Quote, As ye deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. That the hero, born of woman, crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth a trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Someone has said that history is the account of God ascending to his throne. In the light of this text, we might think that history is the, is the account of God coming to his temple. With this expectant view of history, we can surely sing in these days right after Easter. 
glory, glory, hallelujah, is truth, is marching on. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.